Christmas, I'd love to give you a warm welcome, certainly a warm evening. You have a warm welcome to our service this evening. Uh, those that are here, perhaps there's some in the overflow, I don't know, uh, some looking on from home or listening in, you're very welcome. I'd like to give a special welcome to Dan Woodfield, who's uh, preaching this evening. Uh, Dan is from Haywood's Heath area, um, involved with a church at Bolnor, on the edge of Haywood's Heath, Great Church, Bolnor. Uh, they've had a four o'clock service this afternoon, so Dan then travelled up here to us um, this evening. So we're grateful for you coming and helping us out, Dan. I'm going to uh, read some verses which will lead us in to our first song nicely. You needn't look them up, but um, they, they, they touch on the theme of this evening and they nicely connect us into our first song. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, on that note of giving God the glory, shall we turn to our first song, which is, To God be the glory, great things he has done. So do stand as we have this song sung through for us.
Um, just before I pray, a few notices that I want to bring to your attention. Um, there are some uh, women's retreat letters uh, on the way out, so please do take your envelope. Uh, this morning I gave quite an extended uh, message, notice about how we're approaching the easing of COVID here at Forest Fold. I'm not going to go through that again, but what was said this morning is going to be, or perhaps already is maybe, as yes, a nod, already is on the website, so do pursue that link if you want to read what was said this morning. And then to say that we have a quarterly church meeting on Tuesday, um, usual items, and then a, a time of prayer particularly for the summer. And if I can just extend uh, that a little bit about the quarterly church meeting. So that'll be the last time that we have a, a financial report from our treasurer, Alan Hare. He gave us a good notice about a year ago that he thought it was right to stand down from being a deacon and the treasurer to give us plenty of notice. He served in that capacity as a deacon for nearly 13 years and he wanted to make way, encouraging as his concern for younger leadership in the life of the church. Well, he told me he didn't want any collection. That's his line and approach as treasurer and we respect that. Uh, but uh, we didn't want it to, come, to go unnoticed. So, Alan, I have got uh, just something to pass on to you. So, if you wouldn't mind coming down the front. You know, I know you don't know about this, but we, we might have done it in the morning, but we've got two morning services and we didn't know quite which one to pick, so the evening service it is. Can I just say, every time I give a treasurer's report, John has full copy in advance. <laughs> <laughs> I stick to it. <laughs> You don't get that privilege. <laughs> but what you do get is um, uh, from the, the, the church here, done by the leaders on our behalf, a card which uh, conveys our appreciation for your, your dedication, uh, your commitment, the many hours, uh, the spiritual concern which has gone into so many aspects of the life of this church. So you can open it later. I'll pass that to you with our thanks. And um, it does include a, a, a gesture of appreciation inside. Um, what, what, we, what we've given to you just to show our appreciation is you and Gina have got a, a trip to London. Uh, it will involve uh, some up and down. It will involve some on and off. And it will involve uh, a bite to eat en route to help you keep going. So... I won't expect you to say anything. I'm just going to say one thing if I may. <laughs> you may. It's a fairly modern hymn which finishes up every verse, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And that's all I've Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. And if you, if you did want to say more, you can get your own back on Tuesday when you're down the, the front here. Good. Well, I want to pray, and amongst the things that we're praying for, it would be good to pray for... Um, leadership and responsibility in the life of the church, giving thanks for what God has provided in the past and for his continuing provision as we go ahead. Let's join together in prayer. Lord, we come to you as the Lord of creation. Your creation points to your character. We think of the vastness of the galaxies and we praise you 
the infinite God. We think of the grandeur of the mountains and we praise you for your magnificent majesty and power. We think of the beauty of the flowers and we wonder at your design and your beauty and glory. We think of the complexity of things like the eye, indeed all aspects of living organisms in their microscopic magnificence and we praise you for your knowledge and wisdom. We think of the way in which you provide for all of your creation and marvel at your goodness and compassion and kindness. And Lord, we think of the way in which in humanity there is relationship and we think of the wonder of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit relating in perfect harmony. We praise you as Lord of the new creation, Lord of the church. We bow before you, we meet as a a group of people this evening, but you are our head and we want your mind on things, we want you worship. We say to God be the glory. Lord we thank you for all that you give to the church. Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for her. We thank you for all that you give to us as a local church. Many, many blessings over many, many years to a a, a frail, mixed bunch. You have blessed us. We thank you for that. And amongst those blessings are those gifts and uh, responsibilities and leaders which are serving the church and have served the church. And we think of that this evening. We praise you for your kindness in giving leaders who love the church, who are committed to the church, seek its welfare, um, have it in their heart to put in much time for the blessing of the church. Thank you, Lord. We know that carries on. We thank you for our deacons who do so much in the life of this church, giving so many hours and working things through together. We thank you for the value that has been over many years and particularly through this uh, difficulty of the COVID time. We thank you for many others who take responsibility in the different groups of the life of this church. And we pray that you would sustain those involved with responsibility, many demands, much that drains. Uh, Lord, do give strength and wisdom and peace of mind and help. Refresh us. And do go on to give uh, leaders to the church in coming years so that from one generation to another the gospel may be passed on and served and that this church may be a lighthouse to its community. Lord, we pray for those who are in changing situations. We pray for Alan as he... uh, uh, hands down uh, those particular, more upfront, formal responsibilities. We pray that you would greatly bless him in his soul, help him in his many other responsibilities that he continues to do in serving other Christian organisations and particularly the Christian publicity organisation. Help others in changing circumstances. We think of Dan Martin, who's 
moving off of his responsibilities of London City Mission. We thank you that he has worked. We thank you that it's been modified away from night shifts to evening shifts. We pray that you would bless and lead him and Diane in their future. We thank you for others who have been here and then moved on to other ministries whose circumstances also have changed. We think of Julian and Laura and the big change that happened for them last year. Do bless them as they serve you in their new situation in life. Be with Rosie and Papua New Guinea, especially in this time with less internet access. We thank you for the way you use her. Encourage James and Rachel and their family as well in Cyprus. Lord, we remember what we... uh, thought about on Thursday. Lord, we do pray that you would give us wisdom to live for you in our everyday lives. May our lifestyles match the gospel. May it make the gospel attractive. May we be fruitful, increasing in the knowledge of of God, um, useful in our lives. We pray that you would give us endurance and particularly those going through difficult times of challenge and deterioration and upset and disappointment. May their anchor point be in gospel truths. Lord, we come to you this evening. We love the gospel of grace. We thank you for that note in the passage we're going to look at this evening. And we do pray that as we do so, that your spirit may be at work in our hearts, softening us to your truth, pointing us to your Son, refreshing us in him who have loved him, trusted him over the years, but sparking new spiritual life in others who as yet have not found the glory of God in the grace of the Gospel. Be with us then, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in a great chapter this evening and uh, Dan is going to come up and read it to us. So, for my hand over to you. Thank you, Dan. Great. Well, good evening. It's lovely to be here with you. Um, I would say a big welcome to Hewitt. I think some of you know Henry and Frankie um, Young, so you will be aware of the welcome from there. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. I'll give everyone a moment just to turn that up. Then we'll read through the whole of that together. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gate day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, on the road, he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Well, we'll take a moment. Um, in a moment, we'll look through those verses, but I'll hand back to John. So we look forward to Dan preaching from that uh, chapter. And then, as usual, at the very end of the service, we 
are able to have uh, a hymn outside, so if you've got that on your, if you've been WhatsApped, you'll have that. Otherwise, there'll be some books or some sheets. It's Amazing Grace will be the last hymn. But uh, our next song um, reflects uh, a change in somebody's life, which I think uh, can be seen as similar to the experience that we've read about in Acts chapter 9. The song is, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. So wonder at God's grace as we have this song sung. Please do stand up and the music starts. Well, if you've closed your Bible, could I ask you to open it again to Acts chapter 9? We want to check that what I'm saying obviously tracks with what God's Word says. It really is a joy to be here with you. Let me just say a quick prayer before we spend some time thinking about Acts chapter 9. 
Heavenly Father, John has already prayed, asking that your word would speak to us, asking that you may bless this time. Lord, I pray as well, asking that what is helpful here for the building up of your church, how Jesus would feed us, please may that stick, would it stand out in our ears and in our hearts. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I imagine this is probably if you are married or engaged, but um, look down at your left hand and you've probably got a precious stone there, a diamond, a sapphire, a ruby. If you're anything like my wife Chloe, you probably look at that and it just brings a little smile to your face. Maybe it's a necklace or an earring, a sign of love, a sign of commitment, a sign of um, that it was a present, it was a gift, a precious stone shining out. Beautiful, splendid, wonderful. Now, in order to get that diamond, or that sapphire, or ruby, or whatever, someone has had to dig deep into the ground. They, they will have needed a big drill, perhaps dynamite, and mountains of effort. The end result is this beautiful, gleaming stone of great worth. But you need to go deep to get it. Now, it's a bit cheesy, but today we're looking at one of the brightest diamonds in the history of the church, the Apostle Saul, uh, later called Paul. And there's a great deal for us here. It is cheesy, but if we would be diamonds like Paul, if we would shine out for the glory of Christ, there is so much here in this chapter to encourage us and to transform us. And that's my prayer for us this evening, that when we've, when we've done thinking about this, that we would leave shining more for the glory of Christ because we've understood more of his grace. Um, we've been working through the book of Acts at Grace Church and in the chapters prior to this, um, particularly chapter 8, there's this idea that the gospel goes very wide. It starts bringing new people in. But chapter 9 is all about the gospel going really deep. It's about going really deep into the life of someone, the Apostle Saul, who is persecuting, hating Jesus. And so I pray that this will help us this evening. And it's worth saying that everyday Christians have issues with grace. Maybe it's those quiet thoughts you have that says, how deep is the love of Christ for me? I mean, I mean, really. How deep does the love of Christ go? How, how do I get Christ's love to transform me, to get below the surface of my life, to stop it just being an idea, to be a transforming truth? Well, the big idea of Acts 9 that we're going to be looking at tonight is that the grace of God in Christ is deep and it transforms those it goes deep in. And there are some bits of this account which are very unique. I mean, Paul becomes an apostle. This is very dramatic. It's very sudden. But the grace at the heart of it and the calling to a new life, that is universal for every Christian and could turn us from lumps of coal into shining diamonds. And so we're going to spend a bit of time looking first at um, the first half of the passage. We're going to look at what causes conversion. And second half, we're going to look at what does conversion lead to. 
And the first, what causes conversion? The answer is very simply, grace. What causes conversion? The answer is very simply, grace. This conversion caused by grace is the first step on every Christian being a shining diamond. But it only works in the first two verses when the heart is exposed and then changed by the grace of Christ. Look down with me at verses 1 and 2. See, grace meets Saul with a thoroughly evil heart. Verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest and asks, can I go to another city to lock these Christians up? The way Luke describes it in his account, Paul's breathing murder. He is out for blood. Damascus is 135 miles away from Jerusalem. It's not bothering Saul, but he wants to go and destroy these Christians. Male, female, verse 2, doesn't matter. If he finds them, they're going back with him in chains. Why? Why is Saul so determined to destroy the church? Well, in Philippians 3, Paul later tells us He says he was zealous for the purity of Judaism. His heart demanded religious purity. This Christian sect with their Messiah, they're an impurity to be stamped out. The religion he had built his life upon was being threatened by these Christians and so he tries to destroy them. The the anger... And the radical nature of his actions here shows what's going on underneath in his heart. His outward zeal for destruction really shows an inward demand that worshipping God be done as he wishes it. Despite claiming to worship the Lord, Saul's opposing him. His heart isn't fixed on the Lord and what he wants. His heart's fixated on purity and works, and self-righteousness. That comes out very clearly in Philippians 3 later. And here's here's a point for us. Saul's life and his actions are built upon the desires of his heart here. In his case, it's religious observance. But the human heart builds builds a life around it based on what it wants in all kinds of ways. In our context, our culture it might look something like this. Not religious purity, but I will be comfortable. I will live life in comfort. I will be respectable. I will be relevant. I will be free. The heart latches on to many things to build a life upon. And everything that is not aimed towards this goal is a threat to be destroyed. Sinful desires of the heart do this. They They say, I will be the king of my own life. And if you're not bowing down to what I want, then I will destroy you. And of course, Jesus is an opposing Lord to what we desire. He says, you will not be allowed to build your life upon what you want. And the response from Saul is violence, like a horse trying to buck from its restraints because it refuses to be tamed The reason we spent so long on these first two verses is that grace only gets deep when we realise the evil 
in the human heart. The propensity to build life upon anything that is not God. And then the desire to defend it to the death rather than bow before the Lord Jesus. Saul shows us the depths of evil a heart can sink to when it sees Christ as a threat. It might look like violence. It might look like apathy. It might look like just complete disinterest. But when the heart is building its life upon something that is not Jesus, Jesus is a threat. And wonderfully in verse 3, when our hearts are evil, when our hearts are rejecting Christ, grace accepts us when we should be destroyed. Christ accepts us when we should be destroyed. This is perhaps the most famous conversion in all of church history. Let's look down at verses 3 to 6. As Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. As Saul goes to destroy the church in the worst moment of sin, Jesus meets him. In the worst moment of sin, Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Saul. In the worst moment of sin, Jesus chooses to have Saul for himself. He meets him in this exquisite light from heaven. So remarkable, it throws Saul off his horse. And then those words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? A wonderful encouragement for us if we're believers that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. He identifies so strongly with his people that to hurt them is to hurt him. And Saul doesn't know what to say. He, he doesn't know who's speaking. Lord is this, um, it's, it's a generic term of respect. He doesn't know it's Jesus. But just imagine a bright light from heaven that throws you off your horse that blinds you and says, you're persecuting me? A taster, almost, of standing before Jesus on his judgment throne? What do you expect? When faced with grandeur and power like this, saying you're its enemy, what do you expect is going to happen? The expectation is death, isn't it? Destruction. Jesus said in Luke 10, Uh, Verse 16, whoever rejects Jesus rejects God in heaven who sent him. Saul setting himself up against heaven itself. In this moment, his utter helplessness, his utter need is revealed in the light. When we're faced with the utter sinfulness of our sin, when it's unmistakable to us, when it's almost as if we're standing before Jesus in his light and we have no answer, We don't run away. We don't squirm out of our sin. We have seen that living in ourselves, we have set ourselves up against the Lord of heaven. Was when we realise the depth of our need that grace suddenly goes deep. Saul has the expectation of death, but verses 5 and 6, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, not then die, not then die, to hell with you, 
but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you must do. This is grace. The exact opposite of what Saul deserves. You are opposing me, but get up and you'll be told what to do. You are opposing me, but you are mine now. And the following verses unpack this in some wonderful ways. In these words is packed in forgiveness and salvation and transformation and commission. Because verses 8 and 9, grace means we get a new life. In verse 8 to 9, Saul is taken to Damascus. He's blind. You might ask, why is Saul made blind? What's that about? When he goes to Damascus, he fasts for three days. But he's only made right when Jesus decides that he will be, his sight will be restored. So it's on Jesus' say-so that he can see again. And I find this so interesting. It means that Jesus, after saying to Saul, you're mine, deliberately keeps Saul blind for three days. I can't help but think of those three days that Christ spent in the tomb, dead, awaiting resurrection and new life. If you know Paul in his letters, the phrase in Christ comes up all over the place. Because for Paul to be a Christian means your old self that is due to be condemned, that is guilty and full of shame, has died in the grave. And the new life in which you are accepted and loved and adopted and brought in and awaiting glory, that is what you have in Christ. And I've just got to wonder, in these verses, whether Jesus gives Paul a taste of what would be the cornerstone of his theology. A taste that three days, almost as it were, in a living death, so the new life, given in gracious love, comes very sweetly to him. It's not just Paul, it's every Christian. Your old self, that you hate, that you feel guilty and ashamed about, is dead. Because if you are a Christian, Christ has given you a new life. But it's not just that grace gives us a new life. Moving on, Grace means we're chosen by Jesus. Ananias is commissioned to go to Saul. He's obviously scared, but look how Jesus comforts him as he goes to the destroyer of the church. Verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. uh, Jesus' comfort to Ananias is that Jesus has chosen Saul. That this persecutor is no longer a persecutor because Jesus, by grace, has picked him and made him his. That he has a role, a purpose for him, a path laid out for him. And it's interesting, isn't it? That path, verse 16, is a path of suffering. You see, once... Saul gets that he has been chosen by Christ. The rest of his life, he will suffer for the sake of Christ's church. He says in Colossians 1.24, his life is filling up the sufferings of Christ. That is, everything he does now, because he's been chosen by Jesus, is for the sake of Jesus. 
Everything he suffers is for the sake of the church because Jesus has placed such a mark on his life because at the moment of worst sin, Jesus said, I'm going to have you for myself. That his life is turned completely upside down. Jesus has reached down and chosen him. See, for the Christian, Jesus choosing you, it's specific. It's personal. Ephesians 2 verse 10, he has good works for each of us. That means that if you are a Christian, in his grace, Christ saw you and he chose you to do the good works that he has given you to do. From mortal enemy to chosen instrument, Christ gives us the dignity of serving him, being chosen specifically by our Saviour. And then finally in our first point, verse 17 and 19, we're accepted. Ananias does go to Saul. And the first words he says, he lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, John Stott notes that these might be the first words that Saul has ever heard from a Christian since he met Jesus on that road. And the first words that Saul gets are brother Saul. The first action towards Saul from a Christian is a hand on his shoulder drawing him up. And in that moment, everything that grace does for us is shown. See, grace changes us. From a, uh, changes Saul from a fanatic to family. He goes from being a murderer to a member. He goes from being a bully to a brother. All hostility between God and Saul is gone. All hostility between Christians by grace can be resolved. See, in grace, whatever you think holds you back from Jesus, when you ask, is Jesus' grace enough for me? Whatever that thing in your mind is that says, oh, but this. No. Grace means that you, in Christ, are accepted. Let's go back to our diamond. Maybe you're looking at your ring and smiling at it since the beginning. Maybe not. The diamonds, they're hidden in the depths of mountain, deep in, mountains, deep in the earth. And only something substantial is going to get them out, right? How much TNT does it take to get to start a mine going? How big's the drill? How much manpower to get deep enough? See, it's only once the hard exterior, the, the, the side of the mountain is broken into, that the inside can be sifted through so that those gleaming diamonds can be brought out. And in our passage in Saul's life, it is grace that's the drill. The explosion, it takes Saul's evil heart and utterly ruins it. And for the Christian, the everyday Christian, see, grace has got to break through as well. Otherwise, that, that diamond-like brilliance reflecting the glory of Christ, which we'll see in the second half of our sermon, is going to remain under the surface. I think if you like a so what from a sermon, this is it, the big point. How deep has grace, the grace of Christ, the grace that accepts you, the grace that chooses you, how deep has it got into your heart? 
John read 1 Timothy uh, 1.15 earlier. For Saul, uh, for Saul later Paul, grace transformed him. It turned him upside down. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Galatians 1.15.16 God who set me apart was pleased to reveal his son in me. God was pleased to have me. 1 Corinthians 15.9-10 and 10, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. For, for Paul, grace got so deep that he couldn't see himself apart from it. How deep does grace go for you? Do you understand that the grace of Christ for you is in your worst moment, not just your best? In the middle of the dark night, in front of your computer, consuming what you know you shouldn't, in the middle of the most irrational anger you have ever felt, in the middle of the worst gossip you indulge in, in the moment of your worst doubts, in the moment of your worst whatever, you fill in the blank for yourself. Do you know that the deepness of the grace of Christ is for you then? That like Saul in his worst moment, Christ will have you in your worst moment. And every Christian has to let that truth sink deep because it's only when that comes through that we can be transformed into those diamonds. And so we're going to move on to our second, and it is a quicker point. What does the conversion of grace cause? Well, transformation. If grace gets underneath the surface, transformation. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, I want us to think back to when you were learning to swim kids uh, in here, there might be some of you who are still going through that. When we learn to swim, we probably stay in the shallow end, right? That's That's where we're comfortable. You feel safe. Your head doesn't need to go under the water. You can stay away from the scary deep side. But of course, if you stay at the shallow end, well, it's hard to swim there, isn't it? It's hard to do the the flips in the water, it's hard to dive, it's hard to do anything that's actually particularly interesting. Now, going into the deep end is scary. It means letting go of a safety blanket. But when you get to the deep end, you can be far more free. You can swim, as you've seen other people swim. You can, you can do all those things that the Olympic swimmers do. I want to think of grace, changing image from diamonds, as a bit like that swimming pool that we're learning to swim in. And many, many Christians stay in the shallow end for their entire lives. I'm great that I'm not going to hell when I'm going to heaven, and that is kind of enough for me. They kind of paddle in that grace. And in many cases, their lives show this. But I'm utterly convinced, I think Saul's life in the profundity of his change shows us this, that if we don't allow ourselves to go to the deep end of grace, if we don't allow grace to to permeate our souls, if we hang on to our secret sins without confessing them before Christ in his grace, if we think that Christ loves us this much when he really loves us this much, if we hold on to whatever it is, self-righteousness or self-respectability rather than 
throwing ourselves upon the grace of Jesus alone. If we secretly think we're not that bad, and so grace is not that deep, then we end up being like a child who will only paddle in the shallow end. And so it doesn't do anything particularly interesting for the, for the gospel. We paddle rather than actually swim. And I think you see this in Saul's life, because once grace has gone deep in him, well, the purpose of his life is transformed. The purpose of Saul's life is transformed. Verse 20, he was trying to destroy the church, but now he's immediately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the son of God. His purpose has changed. His zeal that was once used to destroy the church has now been transformed by Christ to proclaim Jesus. And verse 21, it amazes people. Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here? for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? That's exactly the question. What's happened to Saul? Which the grace has got deep. The passage is full of these little ironic reversals. Saul started hating Jesus. He ends up loving him and preaching him. At the beginning, he's persecuting the church. At the end, the church enjoys peace because he's now a Christian. He was growing in his Jewish reputation beforehand, but now, verse 22, he's growing in his ability to preach Christ. Saul starts hating Christians. He finishes by being accepted by the apostles. He comes from Jerusalem to hound people, and by the end of the passage, he leaves Jerusalem being hounded for the sake of Christ. See, grace transforms the very purpose of his life because once Jesus has got his hooks in you, you can only live for Jesus. These kind of reversals, they're all through church history. See, John Newton was a slave owner before, by grace, he supported Wilberforce to abolish it. He wrote the song Amazing Grace, which we'll sing later. Martin Luther was a legalist until until grace got into his heart and he spent the rest of his life preaching it. Addicts have moved from being mastered by their, by their passions to wanting to campaign against them, against industries, to destroy them. Murderers now evangelise in prisons. Those who were once in debt, freed by the help of Christians and by the grace of Christ, now help Christian charities and advocacy groups. See, the, when grace gets its hooks into you, the purpose of your life is utterly reversed. Suddenly, the freedom and the motivation to want to live for Jesus comes from knowing how much he loves you. We love because he first loved us. The purpose of our life is transformed by deep grace. Second, the evaluation of Saul's life is transformed. The evaluation of Saul's life is transformed Again in Philippians 3, Paul Paul says that he was advancing in Judaism far beyond his contemporaries. He had a life plan, head Pharisee, prestige, learning, money probably. And the grace of Christ brings it all crashing down. Now the Jews he once wanted respect from, he's rejected by. 
It happens again and again in our passage. He's rejected in Damascus. They try and kill him. He then goes to the church, to the apostles, and they reject him because they think he's lying to to trick them. He's not. They do eventually accept him, but he faces rejection there again. And then verse 29, he debates against the Hellenists, um, Greek-speaking and philosophizing Jews, and then they seek to kill him. But despite all this, verse 27 and 28, he, he preaches boldly. Again, he preaches boldly. Back in Damascus, he's preaching Christ is the Son of God. Because he knows that once grace, once he knows the grace of Christ, whatever anyone else thinks of him doesn't matter. That when he knows the love of Christ for him, that, that's it. The evaluation of his life is sorted. The only question after that is, am I doing what Jesus has told me to do or not? Once grace has gone deep in us, we will only ever be defined by the opinion of the Lord. Only his approval will matter. You just think of the implications of that. When we struggle to make radical choices in the Christian life, when we're scared in evangelism, when when we just don't want to fight that sin, if we face a major life change and we're uncertain about what we're going to do, the only evaluation left is whether our Saviour is happy with us or not. If you get grace, that will be the only thing that matters. Even your suffering will be put in perspective. The world can hate us. This body can crumble. But we have the grace of Christ. And then the very last point. The life of the church is transformed by grace. See, at the beginning of the passage, as I said, the church was facing threat, but at the end in verse 31, suddenly it has peace because its main persecutor is now a Christian. He saw was a danger, but now it's past. And so Christians enjoy a time of being built up. In seeing the conversion of their worst persecutor, they see that Jesus is Lord, so they fear him. They're comforted by how grace can transform someone like this. The Holy Spirit makes that alive in their lives. And they have peace. And in that time of peace, the church grows. It multiplies. That's the kind of transformation that every Christian can have. When we see grace in our own lives or in the lives of others, and we are fearing Christ and we're comforted by the Spirit well then, suddenly great things happen in the church. I want to say, in the UK, we're not facing massive organised persecution, certainly not in the same way that the early church did. And when the early church had their time of peace, they took it. When Jesus, by his grace, gave them a time of relative safety... Well, they didn't just, walk, they didn't just um, rest on their laurels. They walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They knew that Christ was Lord and they were comforted by all that the Spirit brings to us in the Gospel. I take it by that. It means all those things we've talked about in grace, the Holy Spirit kind of imprints them on the heart like a seal upon clay. And we have this time of peace. And so, as I finish, I want to say, As I said to Grace Church when I was there, 
I think now's the time for the church to swim deep in that pool of grace. Because when persecution comes, we may be distracted for a time. These wonderful verses, the wonderful grace of Christ to evil hearts, shows us just how deep his love is. Just how deep the gospel can go to transform even you and even me. And if we get this, we may say with Paul as we, fin- um, as we finish, we could only ever say, I am what I am by the grace of God in Christ to me. Why don't we take a moment of quiet just to reflect, maybe to pray to the Lord in our own hearts, and then I'll say a, a prayer for us before John comes up again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. Thank you that he chooses us and accepts us. And when this truth hits, we will be transformed. Heavenly Father, it's a warm evening and I've been long in my preaching. I pray that you would burn away anything that's unhelpful or unnecessary and leave behind the gold of your word that changes us and transforms us. Above all, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he would be so gracious to people like us. Amen.